0: Hello, and welcome back to the Historia Dramatica podcast. I'm your host, Willem Connor. Thank you, as always, for listening. In the first episode of our series on the French expedition to Egypt, we set the scene. I explained the geopolitical situation on the eve of the expedition, and introduced some central characters whom we will follow throughout the series. I also attempted to give a rationale for the expedition, which was a lot harder than it sounds. I also gave a brief overview of egyptian history from the 13th century onward i don't wish to recapitulate all these details for you here but i'm sure most of you have already listened to that episode anyway if not i'd encourage you to go listen to that first then come back here anyway after all this we began the narrative in earnest following napoleon and his forces as they seized the little mediterranean island of malta expelled its old inhabitants the knights of the hospital of saint john and left in their place a modern French-style Republican government. Having successfully exported the revolution to Malta, the expedition departed for Alexandria, Egypt, on June 19th. They left just in time because, despite their best efforts to the contrary, British intelligence had been aware of the presence of the French Armada in the Mediterranean for quite some time now, although they were as yet unsure of its destination. The British had a sizable naval force in the Mediterranean as well, but it was currently tied down fighting the Spanish, the French's allies. So, the Admiral of the Mediterranean Fleet, the Earl of St. Vincent, dispatched Vice Admiral Horatio Nelson with a small squadron to investigate. After Nelson, whom we gave a proper introduction to last episode, sent his first reports on the French fleet from a position due west of Toulon, St. Vincent sent Admiral Nelson more ships and ordered him to intercept and engage with the French Armada directly. Nelson's fleet was consistently just one step behind the French. He arrived at Malta on the 22nd of June, only to discover that the French had departed three days prior. Correctly speculating that Napoleon's ultimate destination was indeed Egypt, Nelson immediately set off after them, and that night, the two fleets passed within 30 miles of each other in the fog of the night, neither being aware of the other's presence. The British arrived at Alexandria six days later, they made contact with the Sharif of Alexandria, Mohammed el khoraim who claimed to know nothing of any such invasion. This caused Nelson to doubt that Egypt had been their true destination after all. He departed the next day, sailing first for Sicily, then for Greece, in a fruitless search for the French fleet. Meanwhile, on board the Orient, the flagship of the French fleet, Napoleon and the commander of the fleet, Vice Admiral Francois-Paul Bruess, remained blissfully unaware of Nelson's progress, and the fleet continued on to Alexandria at its own leisurely pace. As he was prone to seasickness, Napoleon spent the majority of his time below deck, perusing books from the comfort of his own bed. When he wasn't in bed reading, Napoleon had lengthy intellectual conversations with two of his savants, the chemist Claude-Louis Berthollet and the mathematician Gaspard Monge. Topics of discussion ranged from chemistry to physics to politics to economics but by far their favorite subject of debate was religion. Despite his personal ambivalence towards the spiritual, Napoleon often found himself in disagreement with Berthollet and his staunch atheism. Napoleon believed in some sort of distant, abstract creator, being what we would describe today as a deist. Oddly enough, at this time, Napoleon had a growing admiration for the religion of Islam. One of the books he had been studying below decks was the Quran, he had not exactly been converted, but he did come to regard the religion as a powerful tool for political organization, and he planned to fully use his cursory knowledge of Islam in order to win over his new Egyptian subjects. Evidence of Napoleon's attitude towards Islam can be found in a declaration he authored and issued to his soldiers once they made landfall. This declaration reads, in part quote, The people we will be living alongside are Muslims. Their first article of faith is. There is no other god but God, and Mahomet is his prophet. Do not contradict them. Treat them as you treated the Jews and the Italians. Respect their muftis and their imams as you once respected their rabbis and bishops. Have the same tolerance for those ceremonies prescribed by the Quran and for their mosques, as you had for the convents, for the synagogues, for the religion of Moses and of Jesus Christ. The Roman legions used to protect all religions, you will find here different customs to those of Europe, and you must get accustomed to them. On June thirtieth, the French fleet arrived on the coast of Egypt, having missed the British fleet by just one day. A direct landing in Alexandria was deemed too risky, so Napoleon ordered that the army disembark at the small fishing village of Marabou, some five or six miles west of the city. Admiral Bruesse demurred saying that given the narrowness of the coast and the poor weather, it would be extremely dangerous to disembark here and now. Bruess instead suggested that the landing take place at Aboukir Bay, further to the east, and that he'd be given three days' time to complete it. Napoleon objected, declaring, quote, Admiral, we have no time to lose. Fortune has given me three days. If we do not take advantage of this, we are lost. End quote. turned out to be right, however, as the disembarkment was a disaster. There were hardly enough rowboats to get all the soldiers ashore. Men overloaded these small rowboats, many of which capsized in the choppy water. Few of the men could swim, and all told, it is reported that 20 to 30 of them drowned. In the early morning of July 2nd, Napoleon himself made it ashore, and gave the order to press forward to Alexandria, despite the fact that most of the army's provisions had yet to be offloaded, including, crucially, drinking water. Bedouin Raiders nomadic Arab inhabitants of the region harassed the army's flanks. They charged in between columns of marching soldiers, killing or capturing any stragglers, and running off before a proper response could be mounted. The army arrived at Pompey's Pillar on the outskirts of the city around 8 a.m. that morning. From there, they were able to observe the city of Alexandria itself, and they were decidedly disappointed at what they saw. The city founded by Alexander the Great, once the capital of all Egypt, at one point the largest city in all the world, appeared to be nothing more than a shadow of its former glory. Only 25,000 now lived in a city that once boasted a population closer to 250,000. Luckily for the French, its fortifications were dilapidated, and there was only a single barrel of gunpowder to be found throughout the entire city. The defenders of the city numbered less than 600. Indeed, the sheikh of the city, Muhammad al-Khoraim, had disregarded the warnings of the British, and the invasion came as a complete surprise to him. Seeing the mass of French sails in the distance, he wrote a panicked letter to the Emir al-Hajj, Murad Bey, who was effectively the commander-in-chief of the Mamluk military. The letter read, quote, My lord, the fleet which has arrived here is immense. One can neither see its beginning nor its end. For the love of God and his prophet, please send some fighting men to protect us. End quote. Murad Bey promptly wrote back to El Khoryim, Simply asking him if the attacking army was on horseback or not. After learning that they were not, Murad Bey laconically declared, quote, "My men will destroy them, and I will slice open their heads like watermelons in the fields." Quote. Regardless, Murad Bey was all the way in Cairo, too far away to reinforce the city in time. Napoleon hoped to use the same ruse to capture Alexandria that he had used to capture Valletta in Malta. He sent a message to El Khuraim, stating that he had come as an ally of the Ottoman Sultan, and effectively asking him to surrender the city. El Khuraim responded by riding out of the city at the head of a detachment of 20 Mamluk cavalrymen, and attacking a French scouting party. As had happened at Valletta, Napoleon was forced to order a direct assault. The dehydrated soldiers' desire to find water overwhelmed their fear of the gunfire and the stones hurled at them from the ramparts and they were quickly able to scale the walls and enter the city. After having quenched their thirst, the French soldiers advanced through the city. Though they faced little organized resistance, they were fired upon by lone sharpshooters, who took up positions on rooftops and taller buildings. When he entered the city, Napoleon himself was shot at by two of these snipers. Fortunately for him, their shots only grazed him, and his bodyguards made short work of them. El koraim himself had fled his compound, and now occupied a fortified position on Pharos Island, the former site of the Lighthouse of Alexandria. Realizing that his situation was indeed hopeless, El Khouryim went to the French consulate, where Napoleon had set up his headquarters, and prostrated himself before him, proclaiming himself to be his slave. Napoleon pardoned El Khouryim for the crime of resisting him, and allowed him to remain in an administrative capacity in the city, so as to more quickly restore order. All told, the French lost approximately 30 men taking the city. It was estimated that the Alexandrians lost around 700. Given that the city's garrison numbered around 500, it is difficult to tell how many of these casualties were civilians. With the city now firmly under his control, Napoleon issued an edict to his new subjects. This document explained the official reason for the invasion, the mistreatment of French merchants by the Mamluks. This document denounced the Mamluks as rapacious tyrants who had no right to rule over the land of Egypt. Elsewhere in this document, one can see how Napoleon attempted to use religion as a means of winning popular support. He claimed that the French were themselves faithful Muslims because they had destroyed the Knights of Malta. The declaration ends by exhorting all Egyptians to support the French and outlining the punishments that would be meted out to those who opposed them. Now, a slight digression. The most interesting and comprehensive accounts of these events come from two Muslim scholars, Abd al-Rahman al-Jabardi and Nukula bin Yusuf al-Turk. Unfortunately, al-Turk's writing is unavailable to me as it has only been translated from Arabic to French, and I cannot yet read French proficiently. However, al-Jabardi's History of the Period of the French Occupation of Egypt has indeed been translated into English, and it is quite a fascinating read. I mention Al-Jabardi because he provides a valuable insight into the attitudes held by Egyptians towards the French invaders. He was not at all convinced by Napoleon's declaration, which he described as a, quote, miserable letter filled with incoherent words and vulgar constructions, end quote. Al-Jabardi dedicated six entire pages of his account to critiquing the grammatically incorrect Arabic the document was written in. Moreover, he was not convinced in the slightest by Napoleon's claims that the French were faithful Muslims. The declaration began with the statement, quote, In the name of God the Merciful, the Compassionate. There is no God but God. He has no son, nor has he an associate in his dominion, end quote. Al-Jabardi claimed that the statement was worded such that it rejected the core tenets of both Christianity and Islam. Rather, Al-Jabardi believed that the French were, first and foremost, quote, materialists who deny all god's attributes." End quote. He ends this section of the chronicle by unleashing a volley of curses upon the French. Quote, "May god hurry misfortune and punishment upon them. May he strike their tongues with dumbness. May he scatter their hosts and disperse them. Confound their intelligence and cause their breath to cease." End quote. It is of course worth restating that during this time period, Alexandria was little more than a backwater of a town of less than 25,000 people. The French soldiers were decidedly unimpressed at this city of ancient, dilapidated buildings and narrow alleyways inhabited by feral dogs and plague victims. The capital city of Egypt had been, for the past 800 years or so, Cairo, some 140 miles to the southeast. This was the true objective of the campaign. To achieve victory in Egypt, Cairo had to be captured as soon as possible before the Mamluks could organize effective resistance to the invasion. As early as July 3rd, the very day after the capture of Alexandria, Napoleon ordered the division under General Dessay to begin marching to the city of Damanur, some 130 miles southeast. Say's division would be followed by three others. The remaining divisions would march along a more northern route, capturing the port city of Rosetta before the whole army would rendezvous at Al-Ramania, and followed the route of the Nile River south to Cairo. Accompanying them would be a flotilla of smaller ships, mainly gunboats and transportation ships, under Captain Jean-Baptiste Perret. This flotilla not only carried the army supplies, but also many non-combatants, namely the savants. Dominor was a three-day's march away, across desert terrain. It would have been difficult under normal circumstances, but conditions were made worse by the fact that the army was still critically under-provisioned, as the ships were still in the process of unloading supplies. As well, they were under constant harassment by the Bedouin raiders. Earlier, Napoleon had tried to strike a deal with the Bedouin chieftains. In exchange for a rather large sum of money, the Bedouins would provide 1,000 horses and camels, as well as their service as advanced scouts. Additionally, they would return all the captives they had taken during the attack on Alexandria. However, on returning to their camps, the Bedouin chieftains received word that the Grand Mufti of Cairo had issued a fatwa, or decree, declaring that all faithful Muslims should oppose the French occupation. The Bedouins answered this call to arms, and the only part of the deal they honored was the release of the prisoners. The Bedouins immediately resumed harassing the French columns, and accounts of the prisoners' mistreatment at their hands inspired horror among the ranks. Temperatures reached 35 degrees Celsius, or 95 degrees Fahrenheit, and the soldiers baked in their stuffy wool uniforms. The two canteens worth of water the soldiers carried with them were quickly consumed. The few villages the army happened upon during their march were either abandoned, with their wells rendered unusable, or occupied by inhabitants who were unwilling to help. All told, the French suffered a few hundred casualties during the march to Damanor, although exact numbers proved difficult to find. Some were carried off by Bedouin raiders. The vast majority of deaths were due, obviously, to dehydration, while many men, unwilling to continue suffering, committed suicide. General Dessay’s division arrived at Damanur on the 6th of July, after having marched for four days straight. The remaining divisions arrived over the next three days. Napoleon himself did not leave Alexandria until July 7th. He was busy tying up loose ends leaving behind a garrison of 2,000 men, and appointing the wounded General Claubert as the military governor. He also, anticipating the return of the British squadron, ordered his fleet to take up a defensive position in Abu-Kir-Bay, just to the west of Alexandria, or set sail for Corfu, an island off the coast of Greece that had been ceded to France following the War of the First Coalition. Admiral Bruest decided to do the former, a decision that would ultimately prove disastrous. Napoleon arrived at Damanur on July 8th to find his army on the brink of mutiny. He convened a council of the general staff soon after his arrival. The officers were furious with Napoleon for his perceived negligence in ordering the march. He witnessed two of his generals throw their hats to the ground and stomp on them in a fit of rage. Approaching the two officers, he singled out the taller of the two, General Dumas, and accosted him, saying, Don't think your 5 foot 10 inches will prevent you from being hauled in front of a firing squad in only a few hours." End quote. Another officer, a cavalryman named Francois Moreur, was bold enough to confront Napoleon personally, launching into a lengthy tirade, not only blaming him for the suffering and deaths of his men, but condemning the entire expedition as a foolish endeavor that was doomed from the start, and proclaiming that all of these men had just died, only to satisfy Bonaparte's massive ego. Napoleon merely left the room without uttering a single word in reply. Marour then mounted his horse and rode off into the night. He was found dead the next day, killed by a gunshot to the head. The official story is that he was ambushed by Bedouin raiders, but many suspect that he committed suicide, fearing the repercussions of his tirade. Giving the tired soldiers little time to rest, Napoleon soon ordered the army to march to Al-Ramania, a small town directly on the Nile River. The dehydrated soldiers delighted at the sight of the river. Many ran directly into it, some still fully clothed, and drank directly from it. On emerging from the river, they found watermelons growing on its banks in abundance. July 10th was henceforth known to the soldiers present that day as the Feast of St. Watermelon. Later that day, Napoleon had all five divisions form ranks for review. He gave a rousing speech, assuring his men that the worst of their tribulations were over, and that they would soon fight against the Mamluks, and that they would soon achieve the glorious victory that they had been promised. Napoleon's oratory skills won the day, and from this point forward there would be no further murmurings of treason. By this point in time, Murad Bey had managed to amass a rather sizable force, and was heading towards the village of Shubrakit, some 8 miles or 13 kilometers due south. Napoleon ordered General Dessay's division to advance on the village, which they reached on the night of July 12th. The next morning, the men awoke to the sound of a band playing La Marseillaise. They prepared for battle. The Mamluks were quickly approaching. They numbered around 14,000. Of these, 10,000 were regular foot soldiers, but the true strength of the Mamluk army lay in its cavalry. To counter them, Napoleon ordered his men to form into a square formation. This was a defensive position which consisted of multiple ranks of soldiers forming a hollow square. Cavalry often relied on their advanced mobility to maneuver around enemy lines and attack from the flanks. But, in a square formation, enemy cavalry would be met with a wall of bayonets, regardless of whichever side they approached from. The Mamluk cavalry never even attempted a direct attack. They spent a couple hours probing the French infantry squares for weaknesses, to no avail. Meanwhile, Captain Perez's flotilla, which was meant to travel alongside the ground forces, somehow became separated from them, and sailed directly into an ambush laid for them by the Mamluk fleet. After an initial bombardment, Mamluk fighters began to board the French ships. Napoleon's secretary, Boreen, who was aboard one of these ships at the time, described the ensuing action in vivid detail. Quote, Several of our ships were soon boarded by the Turks and before our very eyes they began massacring their crews with barbaric ferocity, holding aloft their decapitated heads by the hair, quote. Some of the savants attempted to make themselves useful during the fight, such as Gaspard Mange, who assisted in the reloading of the cannons. Meanwhile, Claude Bertelet filled his pockets with stones, intending to drown himself and avoid facing the enemy onslaught. He was stopped before he could carry this out, however, and was persuaded to take up arms. In the course of the battle, three of Peret's ships were lost to the enemy, and twenty sailors were killed. Eventually, one of the French gunboats was able to land a direct hit on the enemy flagship, resulting in a spectacular explosion. Seeing this, the Mamluk cavalry on land broke off their attack, and made a full retreat. Napoleon did not have sufficient cavalry forces to chase down the retreating Mamluks, but he was still determined to bring his enemy to a decisive battle. The next day, he ordered the army to make for Cairo. On the 20th, after six days on the march, Napoleon learned that Murad Bey had taken up a defensive position at the town of Imbabe, a village on the outskirts of Cairo. Crucially, Imbabe was located on the left bank of the Nile, saving the French the trouble of crossing the river. On the morning of the 21st, he ordered his men to advance towards the Mamluk position. As they marched, the domes and minarets of the city of Cairo appeared on the horizon, as well as the tops of the Pyramids of Giza, from which the impending Battle of the Pyramids draws its name. Also appearing on the horizon was the enemy force. Estimates as to the size of the force that awaited them range wildly. Napoleon's own calculus places Murad Bey's force at between 16 and 18,000, while some historians have ventured that it was high as 78,000. Regardless of the actual numbers, infantry would have once again made up a majority of the Mamluk force, including Ottoman Janissaries, Kyrene Militiamen, and some Irregulars. Alongside them were the feared Mamluk cavalry. In all likelihood, Murad Bay's forces outnumbered Napoleon's to some degree. As at Shuburkit, Napoleon's plan was to have his divisions form up into squares to counter the enemy cavalry. Realizing what was happening, the Momluks attempted to charge towards the two divisions on their right flank before they could close ranks. The sight of charging Momluk horsemen was both a sight terrifying and fascinating. Wearing exotic, brightly colored clothing, each Momluk warrior carried no less than six firearms into battle, tossing each one to the side after he fired it. Once his ammunition was spent, the Momluk would then draw his saber, some of which were powerful enough to sever the head of an ox in one blow. All the while, they uttered terrifying high-pitched war cries, barreling forward on their horses at full speed. However, the two French divisions were able to form up in time and maintain their composure. They unleashed a devastating volley of fire on the Mamluks at close range. The shock tactics the Mamluks typically relied on to shatter the enemy's resolve would not work here. They were used to fighting other regional powers, or, more often than not, each other. But they had not yet encountered a modern European army such as the Army of the Orient. While an organized cavalry charge very well could have defeated the French, weary as their ranks were from dehydration and illness, the Mamluks quote, simply rode, as soon as the order was given, as fast as they could, each man keener than the next to be first into the fray, each intent upon individual glory more so than collective victory. Instead of a charge, it became more of a race to the French positions. End quote. wave after wave of mamluks were gunned down as they raced forward according to one french soldier who was present at the battle quote, "the number of corpses surrounding us was considerable the clothes of dead and wounded mamluks burned like tinder" End quote. as the stream of mamluk horsemen slowed to a trickle napoleon ordered the two divisions on his left flank to advance on the village itself after fending off an attack by the remaining mamluk cavalry in the same fashion as before these two divisions were able to storm the fortifications in the village, bayoneting their way through the enemy infantrymen who were defending it. According to Al-Jabardi, quote, The French acted as if they were following the tradition of the community of Muhammad in the early days of Islam, and saw themselves as fighters in a holy war. They never considered the number of their enemy to be too high, nor did they care whom amongst them was killed. End quote. At this point, the Mamluk forces began to break ranks. Many tried to cross the Nile in an attempt to flee to Cairo, and drowned in the pandemonium. Murad Bey and what cavalrymen he had left retreated south, towards Giza, but not before ordering his flotilla on the Nile to be put to the torch to further impede the French advance. Murad Bey's final destination was the countryside to the south, from where he would continue to wage a guerrilla campaign against the French. Murad Bey's counterpart, Ibrahim Bey, along with his retinue, who were observing the battle from the opposite bank of the river, also turned and fled. They stopped first in Cairo to gather their families and personal effects, and then set off east, towards Syria. They were followed by a great many citizens of Cairo, who were induced to panic once they realized that the battle had been lost. The smoke of the burning Nile flotilla led some to believe that the enemy was raising the city to the ground. Refugees streamed out of the city and into the countryside. Many were robbed by Bedouins the second they set foot outside the gates of the city. In spite of the fact that they were only barely visible from the battlefield, the engagement at Mbabe on July 21, 1798, is known to history as the Battle of the Pyramids. Over the years, the Battle of the Pyramids has enjoyed a greatly romanticized legacy, thanks in large part to Napoleon himself. Artwork of the battle depicts the pyramids as being far more prominent on the horizon than they were in reality. Napoleon's famous declaration, made before the battle, something to the effect of, quote, soldiers from the top of the pyramids four centuries of history contemplate you, end quote, was, in all likelihood, a fabrication. There is a debate among historians as to whether the Battle of the Pyramids should be counted among Napoleon's greatest military victories, or, as, quote, an incident that was nothing more than a half-skirmish, half-butchery, end quote, over a tactically inferior force, which lasted no longer than two hours. Such concerns over posterity aside, the immediate after-effects of the battle cannot be debated, as the Army of the Orient occupied Cairo soon afterwards. French troops began to enter Cairo on July 24th. The city was seemingly deserted. The only sign of human habitation was the, quote, "...frightened ululation of the women inside their harems," end quote. The French soldiers had very few good things to say about this city as well. Napoleon himself described the five hundred thousand inhabitants of the city as the quote, world's most ugliest rabble, all of whom displayed an appearance which, though it might conceal the gentlest of souls, presaged the slitting of throats, whether scowling or smiling. End quote. Another French officer had more to say on the matter. Quote, Once you enter Cairo, what do you find? Narrow, unpaved, dirty streets, dark houses that are falling to pieces public buildings that look like dungeons, shops that look like stables, an atmosphere of redolent dust and garbage, blind men, half-blind men, bearded men, people dressed in rags pressed together in the streets or squatting, smoking their pipes like monkeys at the entrance of a cave, a few women of their people, hideous and disgusting, hiding their fleshless faces under stinking rags and displaying their pendulous breasts through their torn gowns, Yellow skinny children, covered with suppuration, devoured by flies, an unbearable stench due to the dirt in the houses, a dust in the air, and the smell of food being fried in bad oil and in the unventilated bazaars. In the interest of fairness, Al Jabardi had his own thoughts on the French and their customs Their women do not veil themselves and have no modesty, they do not care to cover their private parts. Whenever a Frenchman has to perform an act of nature, he does so wherever he happens to be, even in full view of people. They have intercourse with any women who pleases them. They do not shave their heads nor their pubic hair. They never take off their shoes with which they tread upon filth, not even when they sleep. Among their repulsive habits is also their practice of spitting and blowing their noses on the furnishings. The streets and houses where the French lived were full of filth, infected earth mixed with bird feathers the entrails of animals, garbage, the stench of their drinks, the sourness of their alcoholic beverages, their urine and excrement. It was such that a passerby was obligated to hold their nose. Quote. Napoleon set up his headquarters at the home of a wealthy Mamluk named Elfie Bey. From here, he sought to reorganize the administration of Cairo, a task he soon would find to be more difficult than he had expected. Before entering the city, Napoleon made his usual overtures to the civil and religious authorities of Cairo, making his assurances that he had only the noblest of intentions, that he was a friend to the Muslim people, and what not. He also told them of his intentions to form a divan, which they consented to. The divan would be a council consisting of nine local elites to be headed by a French commissioner. Ideally, the divan was to administer the city autonomously, and instilled democratic ideals among the people of Cairo. Ultimately, though, the Divan was to accomplish very little. The real authority lie with a five-man military government under General Dominique Martin Dupuis, and a local man, an ethnic Greek named Barthelemy, who was appointed as chief of police. The men appointed to run the Divan feared Mamluk reprisals, and only had a vague conception of western democratic ideals. Napoleon grew increasingly frustrated with their lack of cooperation. He wrote back to the Directory, Egypt is richer than any other country in the world, but its people are in a state of utter barbarism. Around that time, news reached Napoleon that his wife Josephine had rekindled an affair with an old flame, an army officer named Hippolyte Charles. This only compounded Napoleon's despair, and he made plans to abandon the campaign and return to France that winter. On August 13th, however, he received an even more devastating piece of news that would change these plans and alter the course of the Egyptian campaign as a whole. After departing from Alexandria on the 22nd of June, Horatio Nelson's search for the French had proved fruitless. His squadron scoured the eastern Mediterranean for little over a month to no avail. Finally, on July 28th, Nelson caught a break. During a stop at the Greek port of Koran, he had been informed by local Ottoman authorities that the French were indeed in Egypt. Eager to rectify his mistake, he immediately ordered the fleet to make for the Egyptian coast. At around one in the afternoon on the 1st of August, the vanguard of Nelson's squadron, the HMS Zealous, spotted the French fleet anchored in Abukir Bay. What they saw was a total of 13 ships of the line, all anchored in a diagonal line across the coast, their heaviest armaments facing the open sea. In addition to the ships of the line, There were four smaller frigates anchored closer to the coast, as well as a number of gunboats anchored by the docks. The western flank of the bay was protected by a series of impassable shoals and rocky outcroppings, as well as an artillery installation and a coastal fortress at the tip of the peninsula. The alarm was raised at the sight of the incoming British fleet. The French sailors, the majority of whom were ashore at the time, scrambled back to their battle stations. But the French fleet remained critically undermanned, It is estimated that some ships were without as much as a third of their crew. Many of the French sailors' present were young and inexperienced, being teenagers and young men recruited from Toulon and other French coastal cities mere days before the fleet set sail. The French would have very little time to prepare. Nelson intended to engage the enemy fleet that very evening. At three o'clock, Nelson proposed a toast to his officers, that tomorrow he would either earn a peerage or a state funeral in Westminster Abbey. Either a glorious victory or a hero's death. The impending battle would be decisive. Vice Admiral Brouesse, meanwhile, decided to stay put. The fleet, undermanned as it was, could not afford to unanchor and fight under sail. Brouesse merely hoped that he could rely on their broadsides and the coastal batteries to defeat the British. Brouesse's strategy depended on the British forming up in a line parallel to the French, as was typical naval strategy at the time. The British would have played directly into Bruess's hand had it not been for the action of Sir Thomas Foley, captain of the HMS Goliath. Taking the initiative, Foley attempted to maneuver his ship between the foremost of the French line and the coast. This was a very risky move indeed. The British had a very rudimentary knowledge of the base geography. One of their ships, the HMS Culloden, had run aground on the shoals already but there was enough space for the Goliath to pull off the maneuver successfully. Three more ships, the Zealous, the Orion, and the Audacious, followed after. The rest of the squadron was ordered to engage the French from the other side. The front of the French fleet was soon surrounded. Caught in the crossfire, the two ships at the head of the French line, the Guerriere and the, the Concourant, were soon critically damaged and overtaken by British boarding parties. But the battle was not yet lost for the French. The majority of their ships were holding out, the French flagship, the Orient, had 120 cannons and outgunned any one ship in the British squadron. The Orient's broadside soon overtook the HMS Bellerophon, killing or wounding most of its chain of command and splintering its masts. Eventually, the crew was too busy dowsing fires to continue firing the cannons, and the ship merely drifted aimlessly southwards. Two more ships, the Alexander and the Swiftshire, took the Bellerophon's place and opened fire on the already damaged Orient. Despite suffering from a head wound and missing one or both of his legs, depending on the source, Admiral Brouesse remained on the deck of his flagship toward the end, calling out orders until a cannonball, quote, struck him and nearly cleaved him in two, end quote. Admiral Nelson had also been wounded during the course of the battle, although not nearly as seriously as his French counterpart. He was struck in the right eye by a piece of debris, and was blinded. He melodramatically fell into the arms of, of one of his officers, and exclaimed, quote, I am killed, remember me to my wife, End quote. He was then taken below decks to receive first aid, and soon after, he found out that he was not, in fact, killed. As the battle raged on, a fire broke out aboard the Orient. Observers watched as it quickly got out of control, and spread across the deck and up the masts. One hour after the fire broke out, the blaze reached the stores of gunpowder that were stored below deck. The concussion of the resulting explosion was felt throughout the bay. The flash lit up the night sky as far as Rosetta, some 60 miles away. Quote, Whole sections of the ship, masts, spars, and riggings, flew sky-high, mingled with human bodies, and all came down in a sudden shower. As the carcass of the ship sank to the bottom, many of those in the water were dragged along with it. End quote. The deafening blast was followed by ten minutes of absolute silence. There was a sort of unofficial ceasefire, as all present looked on in astonishment and apprehension. When the battle picked up again, the outcome was all but assured. The French continued to put up resistance until four o'clock the next morning. It was around that time that Pierre-Charles Villeneuve, now the highest-ranking naval officer in the French fleet after the death of Bruesse, decided to cut his losses. By this time, only four French vessels remained intact, two ships of the line, the guillaume Tell and the Genereux, and the frigates the Justice and the Diane. Taking advantage of a change in the winds, Villeneuve ordered his remaining ships to escape from the bay. Admiral Nelson decided not to give chase. The British spent the following day counting their losses, which, all told, amounted to around 1,000 casualties, but none of their ships were completely destroyed. Even the Bellerophon though heavily damaged was still mostly intact and would see service again the french on the other hand lost between 2000 and 5000 men and their fleet had been absolutely decimated with their victory at what is now dubbed the battle of the nile the british achieved naval supremacy in the mediterranean after spending two weeks undergoing repairs nelson left abukir bay and docked in the city of naples where he received a hero's welcome he left behind a sizable squadron to blockade egypt and he sent another detachment to dislodge the French from Malta. Upon receiving news of the Battle of the Nile, nearly two weeks after the fact, Napoleon is reported to have exclaimed, quote, "...unfortunate Bruesse, what have you done?" Quote. The entire French fleet, with the exception of four ships, had been annihilated. The British blockade severely limited Napoleon's options. No longer could he easily evacuate his troops, nor could he send to France for reinforcement. Napoleon's plan to spend the winter in France was dashed. Historians tend to assert that the Battle of the Nile condemned the Egyptian campaign to failure, but Napoleon did not share this view at that time. At a meeting of his officers, he declared, quote, We are perhaps destined to change the face of the Orient and place our names beside those which are recalled with the most brilliance from ancient history. We must remain in these lands, or leave them, having become as great as the men of ancient times. End quote. Such rhetoric served to save his army from despair, but privately Napoleon must have realized that the campaign was all but lost. Bourienne writes quote, The catastrophe of Aboukir came like a thunderbolt on the general in chief. In spite of all his energy and fortitude, he was deeply distressed by the disasters which now assailed him. He had measured the fatal consequences of this event at a single glance. And that is where I will end the narrative for today with Napoleon's prospects looking dimmer and dimmer, tune in two weeks from now to watch Napoleon's attempt to forge a new empire for himself in the Mediterranean, or die trying. As always, if you have comments, concerns, questions, etc., you can send them to me via my email, historiadramaticapod at gmail.com. Alternatively, feel free to address such things to me on Twitter or Facebook, links to which will be in the episode description. Until two weeks from now, this has been the Historia Dramatica Podcast. I'm your host, Connor, signing off.